Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. So um, for this episode, I thought I'd start by talking about my father. My father was a physician, an internist, and he had a really severe penicillin allergy. And somehow he got a dose of penicillin and he he was in the emergency room and um, he started to faint and he was not becoming aware of the surroundings. He had difficulty breathing. And his colleague, his friend, Ernie, started to treat him. And he was not an emergency room doctor, Ernie. And Ernie said, oh, oh, I know, I know what to do here. It's epinephrine. And he asked the nurse, he says, nurse, epinephrine and the dilution, uh, 1 to 10,000. And my father, just as he was losing consciousness, says, Ernie, 1 to 1,000. <laughs> and, and he got the right dose, and, and he recovered and then never got penicillin after that. Oh, my um, goodness. But that's, well, luckily that's, he was in the hospital. Luckily he was in the hospital, exactly. Oh, my goodness. Well, we are so excited to have Dr. Victoria Dimitriades. She is a pediatric allergist immunologist here at our own UC Davis Children's Hospital, who's going to walk us through some of the truths and myths surrounding penicillin allergy. So Dr. Dimitriades, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here to talk about this really important topic. Yes, it is important and, you know, so common and so many parents have questions about this. So it's really, really critical that we talk about it. But before we dive into your area of expertise, which is, you know, allergy and and the immune system, I was hoping Dr. Dean could shed some light on reminding us just what penicillin is. And for most of our listeners know that Dr. Dean is a um, infectious disease doctor, so he's very used to using antibiotics. Um, so what what antibiotics are in this class of medications as penicillin and what other what other meds names may families recognize you know before antibiotics most of the treatments for infections really had little effect and the reasons that doctors diagnosed infections was to tell families whether the patient would like live or die and if they were going to die like how long it would take before they they died. And so before, you know, before 1928, we really didn't have much. But in 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered that a common mold, penicillium, produced a substance, penicillin, that killed bacteria. And this became the foundation of a new era in treating infectious diseases. Penicillin was known as the wonder drug that managed to treat once life-threatening infections. And then since then, there are many other antibiotics related to penicillin, such as amoxicillin, or more broadly, they're called beta-lactam antibiotics, such as cephalosporins, and they have even wider antibacterial ranges and can be used to treat infections ranging from strep throat to pneumonia to meningitis. And in GenPeds, I mean, the ear infection is, of course, what I think about when I think about amoxicillin, because it's kind of our bread and butter. Um, so that's a great background on on what penicillin is and some common infections that are used to treat. Um, but many people that we see have been told by their parents that they have a penicillin allergy. Maybe when they were young, something happened, and so they have stayed away from penicillin their whole life. Really, as many as 10% of people believe they have a penicillin allergy. So, Dr. Dimitriades, I was hoping you could talk 
talk a little bit about why there's such a discrepancy between the number of people that believe they have a penicillin allergy and the number of people who actually have a penicillin allergy. You mentioned the 10%. So in national surveys that they did looking across the U.S., they found that um, 5 to 10% of people actually reported that they had a penicillin allergy. But when they were brought in to be tested for penicillin, 98% of them were still able to tolerate penicillin. So it turns out probably only 1% to 2% of those people who think they have a penicillin allergy really do. And there are a lot of reasons for this. First of all, we know um, that penicillin manufacturing has changed over time. So initially, there were a lot of stabilizers and contaminants that could have been in there and caused reactions. We no longer really have that issue. The second thing is that people were reporting that their parents told them that they had a penicillin allergy, basically. And as we know, you know, people were having an infection, they were getting penicillin, and then they would have a rash during that time. Um, but as all pediatricians know, when you see a child who comes in with a fever and has a viral or a bacterial infection, there's a pretty good chance they're going to have a rash anyway. So these were probably presumed reactions to the penicillin, but really were related to the underlying infection. And then finally, and really interestingly, penicillin reactivity, even true allergy, decreases over time. So for every five years you are out from a true penicillin reaction, you only have a 50% chance of still reacting. So you can imagine after about 20 years, your chance of reacting to penicillin is pretty much the same as most of the regular population. Wow. So people can grow out of it in a yeah. way. Yeah. That's great. So we previously talked about food allergies, and thank you, Dr. Victoria, for helping us with that episode, which we released in May of this year. And we briefly went over what a true IgE-mediated allergy is. So would you mind um, reminding our listeners of what this means and what it, what it looks like? Yeah, so an IgE-mediated reaction is one that releases histamine. Histamine is a natural chemical in the body which causes things like hives and itching and swelling, sometimes breathing issues and vomiting, all the things we think of for a classic allergic reaction. Um, allergic reactions happen pretty quickly on exposure, so true IgE-mediated reactions are usually seen within an hour or two of the exposure. And the key here is that you actually have to be exposed to something once before you can develop a true allergy to it. So I wouldn't expect someone to be allergic to a medication if this is the first time they had ever received it. Now, this can happen on the second course of an antibiotic or the third or the 57th course um, that they've used. But of course, if you're using antibiotics that often, we might need to have a different conversation. <laughs> How about if the um, antibiotic was one of those that Dr. Dean mentioned is related, like is a beta-lactam, for example, but but wasn't the exact same name of the antibiotic. If they have another one that is similar in structure, could then it trigger an IgE-mediated response? So that is a hard question to answer. There are some that are related enough to where they can be closely uh, responsive, um, but others that are not. For instance, a great example of this is cephalosporins. Cephalosporin is a different type of antibiotic that in the past when it was manufactured, they had contamination of penicillin in the same batches of cephalosporin. So many people who were uh, told they were penicillin allergic were also told to avoid other things like cephalosporins. But it turns out about, again, we like this number, 98% of patients who are truly allergic to penicillin can still receive cephalosporins. And although they're closely related, they are not what we would call cross-reactive. 
So I have tons of parents come in and ask me, they come in and we diagnose an ear infection and I say, you know, we're going to do amoxicillin and they say, oh, no, 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 no. I am allergic to amoxicillin and therefore my child cannot have amoxicillin. What do you say to parents who who have this concern or this fear for their kids? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We know that allergic tendencies tend to cluster in families. So families that have allergies will share a lot of different types of allergies. But we also know that drug allergy is not a hereditary condition. So I will tell a parent, even though you have, may or may not have, penicillin allergy, um, your child does not have a higher risk to develop penicillin allergy, and you should not um, preemptively avoid penicillin in your child. And as a secondary comment I make to the family, I would also suggest that the parent goes to see an allergist and get evaluated to make sure that their allergy is a true one, and that way we're not avoiding that medication for something that's not needed. So you take care of the child and the parent. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about rashes and penicillin and also amoxicillin. Dr. Lena mentioned that amoxicillin is really the backbone of treatment for common infections such as ear infections. This is really common to have a rash when people are on antibiotics. And and somewhere around 10% of children will get a rash at some point while they're on amoxicillin. And that really is, can be disturbing to the parent because, of course, the parent may connect the antibiotic with the rash. So how can parents and even us, us doctors, us providers, how can we be reassured that a rash while on antibiotics is not an allergy or tipped off, that it is a true allergy and that we need to avoid that in the future? There are several uh, key points to help us work through kind of these histories and help us delineate the real risk uh, for patients. And the first question that's kind of the easiest one is, is this the first time this child has received amoxicillin? That's an easy one, right? Um, If you have not received amoxicillin in the past and this is the first time you've received it, almost regardless of the rash, I would say this is not um, a typical IgE-mediated allergy. So that's very helpful and reassuring to a family. The second question is more uh, related to timing. So how many days into the course did the rash develop? True allergy, as I mentioned before, develops fairly quickly into the course. We're talking maybe the first or the second dose of the medication in that 10-day course, for instance, whereas other rashes will develop day four, five, six, seven into the course. And the truth is, you know, in conjunction with your pediatrician, many times we will discuss the rash, acknowledge the rash, and still recommend that you continue the medication. So it is worth knowing sort of at what point it presented. And then the last helpful factor is the nature of the rash. We tend to associate hives, which look more like uh, mosquito bites, and they move around and they're very itchy uh, with allergy in comparison to, say, a flat rash or a mildly bumpy or blotchy rash, which don't tend to be allergy related. I really encourage families to take pictures of rashes. It's very helpful. And of course, if they can ever come in and get a quick physical exam, that always helps to kind of um, categorize what type of rash we're looking at and helps to make further you know, planning for future medication use. You know, taking pictures is really a game changer because in the olden days when people didn't have, (laughs) Dr. Lena won't remember this, but when people didn't have smartphones, parents would come in and say, my kid had a rash and it's gone and they'd try to describe it. And rashes are notoriously difficult to describe even for medical professionals. And so it'd be very difficult to sort out. And now the parent just whips out their phone and it just makes it so much easier. Absolutely. 
So one thing that when I'm looking at these rashes, you know, they've sent me a message through through the chart and I'm trying to delineate just like Dr. Victoria said, like, okay, when did it start? What does it look like? Does it look concerning? The parent will often say, well, I just don't see what the harm of switching the medication is. (laughs) So maybe they've gotten two days in and they're like, well, I'm just worried. So can we just change it? And so I always like to say, you know, there are some risks that are associated with changing the medication after a couple doses. Um, what, what would you say to a family in that situation? Yeah, I agree. It's hard. Once you've started with a rash, it's very hard to tell what next medication is contributing or not contributing to the rash, right? So if someone has a rash on day two and you change them to a different medication and the rash continues, is it because it's being perpetuated or is it because it has nothing to do with it? Most of the time, if I've determined that it is not likely to be allergy in nature, I recommend to families to continue through the rest of the course. Or if you have gotten close enough to the end of the course, consider completing the course at that time and having them come in for an evaluation. But in general, switching around really ends up with a lot of medications that have question marks after them in terms of whether you could tolerate them or not. So let's say a parent really gives a good history that's convincing for a true IgE-mediated reaction to penicillin. So it's like the third time that they've gotten it, and it's the first dose, and it's hive-like, and um, we refer them then to you, to an allergist immunologist. So when they come to your office for a possible penicillin allergy, what are some of the questions that you ask the family? What do you do about that? Yeah, so the first thing um, I do is review the history. Obviously, that's always going to give us a lot of information. We talk about the type of illness which they had that needed this type of antibiotic. Um, We review how many times they've used penicillin in the past, if they have, or any of the penicillin products. We talk about when the rash started and what it looked like, pictures included. And then we also talk about how the rash resolved. So Also something that is helpful is that a typical allergy rash goes away fairly quickly after you've completed the antibiotic course, whereas other types of rashes last a lot longer. So if a rash lasted more than 24 hours after completion of the course, I'm much less likely to be worried. And how do we test for a penicillin allergy? So for all kids that get a more concerning rash or have a reaction, do they need to be tested or can we monitor some over time? So we can do testing for a true penicillin allergy. So if we feel the history is pretty significant, we will bring patients in and have them do a skin test in the office, which can tell us yes or no. And then we will offer at that time a drug challenge so that we can show that they are tolerant of the medication and do it under supervision. It makes everyone feel a lot better. And then we know we can use it again. In some cases, we feel pretty strongly that the rash is not a true allergy, but in order to kind of prove this to ourselves and to the family, we will also offer a challenge without prior testing. So we can do it right there in the office and they can be observed and then we can be able to send them home after that. Not everybody needs to be tested. In many cases, we can go through the history and determine that this sounds like a true allergy, this sounds like a delayed reaction kind of rash or we're not worried about it, and then we can make recommendations. But of course, the allergists in the community are always happy to be involved in any way that's needed in order to help you know, patients feel more comfortable getting back on these medications. So is skin prick testing the only way to reliably diagnose a penicillin allergy or is there blood testing available like how there is for certain food allergies like we discussed? So there is blood testing available to um, identify IgE to penicillin. 
However, it is not very reliable and we don't recommend that it is used to diagnose a penicillin allergy. In contrast, the skin testing that we use actually has a 98% predictive value of being able to identify someone who does not have a penicillin allergy. And therefore, we feel very comfortable doing a skin test in the office and then giving a a full dose of amoxicillin, in our case, uh, most of the time for proving that everything is um, tolerated. Okay, good to know. No blood testing. Yeah. And there's not many tests in medicine that have an accuracy that high. So that's really impressive. Right. I will say the skin testing is a little involved. And sometimes we try to avoid it in very young children because it is a little traumatic for them. So we try and kind of get somebody at a slightly older range to do it. In most cases, we are able to do just a dose challenge in the younger children and prove that they're able to tolerate it without having to do the skin testing. Yeah. I mean, viral infections in the young age group is so common. And so in a lot of those kids, it is more likely a viral rash. Of course, not always, but but very, very commonly. Yeah. What's your cutoff for younger kids that, you know, what what age do you usually... I mean, every kid's different, but... Yeah, I think it really depends on their maturity level and what we think we need to do. So always we reserve the skin testing for somebody that has a really, really great story. And I can tell you, I recently looked back over about 50 drug challenges that we've done in the last couple years, and only one of them needed skin testing. That's how infrequently we're actually getting the history of early um, hives, first dose of the second or third course. So it's pretty uncommon that we need to. But yeah, there, I would say probably like five or six years old is when you could start thinking about doing these more involved tests. If somebody is like super duper, you know, allergic, can they have like a bad reaction to the skin test? Can that be dangerous? We don't tend to see that in children. I'll say that. But there's always a risk of anyone who does skin testing that can have a that has a true allergic reaction to something can certainly have more likely localized reactivity that's more significant, but occasionally can have more widespread hives as well. It tends to be more in the adult population that that's seen. So if somebody is found to have a true allergy to penicillin, you mentioned the cephalosporins, but what other antibiotics or medications might they be at increased risk for reacting to? And do you, do you make recommendations to avoid other antibiotics? That's a great question. We actually do not make any recommendations for anyone with penicillin allergy to preemptively avoid other medications. We mentioned the cross-contamination issue with the cephalosporins previously, but penicillin is no longer part of that manufacturing process. So all of the cephalosporins are fairly safe. If someone, on the other hand, has a cephalosporin allergy, the question goes backwards too. Are they more likely to have a penicillin allergy? There is a risk. It's a small risk as with any allergy. If you have one allergy, you may have a second allergy. But in general, we don't make preemptive avoidance recommendations based on that. And is this something that families would have an EpiPen for? Because it doesn't seem like it's one of those things like peanuts where you may accidentally come into contact with it. Um, You know, it's pretty clear that you're prescribed an antibiotic and you're taking that antibiotic. So is an EpiPen necessary in these situations? We don't prescribe EpiPen for medication allergies. Um, In general, as a general rule, for most children with amoxicillin allergy, even true allergy, you're 
accidental ingestion, <laughs> which would be hard, um, reaction would be very similar to your previous reaction. So if you had a rash the first time, you're more likely to just have a rash the second time as well. So I think that just uh, makes it less worrisome. And Dr. Dean, another question for you from an, what we call antibiotic stewardship, which means just making sure that we're taking care not to use antibiotics for things that they may not be needed for or, um, you know, making sure that we are judicious about our use of antibiotics. Can you talk about why it is dangerous to mislabel someone inappropriately with an allergy? Yeah, so if somebody is labeled allergic to an antibiotic such as penicillin or the whole related class of antibiotics like beta-lactam agents, that means you have to treat with an alternative. And of course, we would never want to compromise on effectiveness. So that means choosing other agents that may have more side effects, for example, or may need to be given intravenously or intramuscularly rather than orally, or maybe they're more expensive. So you compromise on something else, and that's, that's the problem. And, you know, it seems like, for example, amoxicillin is really the best drug for a lot of these infections, right? And so you may be using a drug that may be more expensive or, or target other bacteria as well, but it's not as good for getting those bugs that are causing that pneumonia or that ear infection. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, or it might cause like more diarrhea or stomach upset or something like that. So that's the kind of compromise that you end up making. So, Dr. Victoria, what can we as providers do to make sure that we are appropriately identifying this? And then going back and maybe like for those kids that I see that are transferring to me and they have that little yellow penicillin allergy in their chart, um, how can I kind of sift through those and determine if they are true allergies, if they're not, and, and make sure that I'm doing my best as a pediatrician? Yeah, so I really like this question because it's twofold <laughs> for us, right? So first we can start by really assessing the history of what happened during the reaction. So if someone comes to you with a history of recent reactivity, this is kind of where you can step in. Because in most cases, based on the history, maybe some pictures or even better, a quick um, physical exam during the period, we could actually avoid labeling altogether, which would be very helpful. So as um, Dr. Dean mentioned, antibiotic choices really get limited as you get older. And there are some medications that are just the best to be used. And so the longer you go with a much longer history of not being able to use medications means there's a lot of things that you're going to go through by the time you really, you know, in your older age may need more and more of these meds. And it's important to not start this process when they're very young. And so on that hand, um, we know that the actual rates of true penicillin allergy are very low. So if somebody comes in, um, or if the picture is confusing, for instance, when they come in to see you with a rash, if they come in already with a label, uh, we do recommend that they come see an allergist. We can go through that history. We can talk about risk factors. We can do testing and we can remove labels if, if they're already there and help kind of form a better treatment plan for them going forward in the future. So here, we are very lucky in that we have access to you, um, but in more rural communities where it may take months to see an allergist, is there ever utility in the pediatrician um, if the story was maybe not so concerning for a true IgE-mediated reaction, doing that test dose right there in their office? 
So there's a lot of discussion about this happening. The reaction, if it is more family concern, or if it is truly, truly outside of IgE-mediated reactivity, I would be very comfortable having them do that testose there. But it's really mostly for proof. It's not truly trying to elicit a reaction. On the other hand, if there is any sort of question and you do want to do this type of testosing, you have to be able to be a first responder in that time. So it would have to be in an office that would be able to react to a true anaphylaxis. You would need to be able to respond with appropriate medications, and you would need to be able to get someone to medical care quickly at a higher level facility. So I don't know that everybody would qualify for something like that, um, but I'm sure there are some cases that can. That being said, I'm sure there are, although some communities don't have an in-person allergist, um, they have actually expanded a lot in the last year um, in terms of telemedicine. And that is actually encouraged very much now to help you work through a history, as I mentioned, which was the maybe the most important part of a true drug allergy uh, evaluation. And so you can do a lot of that through distance um, evaluations, and that can help you sort through what your next steps can be. Well, that's great. I learned so much today about penicillin allergies. Let's summarize um, some of the most important topics from today's episode. So about 10% of people think that they have a penicillin allergy, but when they've been truly tested, we are able to disprove this in almost 98% of people. So most of you out there listening who think you have a penicillin allergy, you actually likely do not. Sorry to burst your bubble. And what we're concerned about are the true IgE-mediated allergies. And these are allergies that don't come on with just the first dose. You've had to have previous exposure. And then when you do get re-exposed, um, pretty much immediately you have these reactions and it's more of a hive-like rash that develops. And we know that rashes are very common, um, you know, from multiple infections, viral infections, bacterial infections. And so they happen commonly when you're on an antibiotic like a penicillin. And those are not all allergies. And so that's why it's very, very important to talk to your pediatrician, to take those pictures and go through the history so that you're not mislabeled as having an antibiotic allergy. If there is concern for that antibiotic allergy, then you might get a referral to see an allergist immunologist. And when that happens, they may do an oral challenge of the antibiotic in the office, or they may do skin testing to see if there's an, an allergy followed by an oral challenge. Absolutely. And of course, if you have any questions, like with all things, please, please talk to your pediatrician. We are more than happy to help walk you through this. Mm -hmm. We would like to thank Dr. Victoria Dimitriades for joining us on today's episode of Kids Considered, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. And that reminds me of a joke. And this is an adult <laughs> joke. So if you're listening with your children, you might want to just like mute it for them now. <laughs> Okay, so what do you give a man who has everything? Oh, what? A shot of penicillin. I don't get it. Well, everything, he's got everything, including, like, sexually transmitted infections. <laughs> <laughs> like gonorrhea, for example. So he needs a shot of penicillin. Or, or actually, syphilis. You know. Is that yeah. an ID nerd joke? That was the only penicillin <laughs> joke I could find. <laughs> That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu, 
follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 